0: Good to see everybody out this morning. Uh, it's always good to be able to come out and worship God. Beautiful, sunshiny day. and We've waited a long time for this warm temperature, so it'll probably cool off a little bit this week. Uh, but we're just glad to be here and be able to worship God. And it's our prayer and desire that everything that we do and say will be in harmony with God's will and pleasing in His sight. We talk about heaven, and we realize that that's in, the, in our future. But we know that as a Christian, we are in a saved condition. We know on the day of Pentecost that when Peter preached that sermon, and they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter told them what they needed to do, and that was to repent and be baptized for the remission of sin, and they would receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That is salvation, and that was uh, that they were now in a saved condition. And as it tells us in chapter 2 of Acts, uh, verse 47... Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And so we know that the Lord added them to the church and that they were in a saved condition. And when we obey the gospel, He adds us to the church and we are in a saved condition. And so John chapter 3 and verse 36 tells us He that believeth on the, on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. As a Christian, we realize that it's important that we continue to be obedient to Christ, that we be obedient to the Word of God. Just as it was important that we obey that gospel, as we, that we obey what God has told us to do to become a child of God, He expects us to continue to live that Christian life and to follow the plans that He has in His Word for each and every one of us. We must be obedient if we want to make it to heaven. And so we may be in a safe condition today, but we have to maintain that, that security. We have to maintain that safe condition. Because we realize that heaven is in the future. We sang a song a few moments ago about never growing old. Well, that's one of the blessings that we have in heaven. That when we get to heaven, we don't have to worry about some of the pains and anguishes that we have in this life because we know that we're going to be in a place of comfort and, and, and joy and happiness with our Lord. And I hope everyone that's here today wants to go to heaven. And if you're not a, a Christian according to what the New Testament says you must do in order to be saved, then I hope that something will be said today that will encourage you to make that decision and take that step and be a child of God, become a child of God. And if you're not living a faithful life, hopefully something will encourage you to, uh, today to, to change that life and to do what God wants us to do. But we understand from the passage that was read for us that, that, that we have a, something that's incorruptible, something that could not be taken away from us, and is kept by God by our, by, through, or through faith. That God has kept it by His power, as it tells us there in First Peter chapter 1. And the Christian lives in hope. We talked about hope last week. Uh, it is our anchor that keeps us grounded. And without that hope, where would we be? And so we have that hope of heaven that someday when we pass from this life that we will be found faithful and that we will have that home in heaven. In Titus chapter 1 verse 2 it says, In hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. And so He promised that. He uh, He has a plan. Jesus tells us that he's gone to prepare a place for us. And if he has gone to prepare a place for us, he'll come again and receive us receive us unto, unto him, that where he is, there we may be also. Be thankful for that, that we have a home prepared for us. But there are complications that sometimes we we, we come up with. We, we, we struggle sometimes that if we're saved, and if heaven's in the future How do do we explain that? Because we're not dead immediately after we are baptized into Christ. But we know that we have that promise out there in the future. And it's kind of like what God told Joshua in Joshua chapter 6. When the Lord said to Joshua, I have given unto thy hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. And so on that situation, the children of Israel had crossed over into the promised land. They come up to the city of Jericho, and God tells Joshua, I've given you the city, I've given you the king, I've given you the men of valor. So basically, you've got it. But Joshua had to do something in order to receive it. There was conditions that God had told them that they must meet to receive that, that ultimate promise. And so today, we need to understand that God has said, "I'll give you heaven," but there's things that you need to do to live that faithful life, and that's something that is very important to us uh, to know. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 32, it says, "But call to remembrance the former days in which, after ye had were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of affliction." Partly while thou yet made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye have compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward, For ye have need of patience that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. Here the Hebrew writer is telling us that that promise is out there in the future and we'll obtain that promise if if we remain faithful, if we are patient and continue to do as God wants us to do. And so not only do we need to get saved, but we also need to remain saved. We can have that promise of heaven, but we have to be faithful. And so we need to maintain that. So there's not a contradiction in Scripture when He says that we are saved, but we need to realize that there are three things that uh, we need to understand. That there are three desires out there. The devil's desire, God's desire for us, and then our own desire. Because we know that the devil is out there, we know that God's there, but we also have a part in this also. And so first of all, let's examine what the devil's desire is. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And so we understand that Satan is our adversary. He's our enemy. He's out there to get us. Not only does he want someone to remain in an unsaved state, but he also wants those that are saved to get back into an unsaved state. He wants us to be lost. That's his ultimate goal. He wants you and I to be lost. And we don't want to be lost. But that's his desire. And he's described as a roaring lion... Walking about, seeking whom he may devour. So he's looking for something. And when you think about, you, know, you watch a documentary on wild lions that are out there in the wild. What do they do? They look at people, or animals that are weak and they go after those. And they, they, they conquer that animal. The devil's sometimes looking for us, looking at our weak spots. And he's trying to get us. And sometimes when we sin, we leave God and we don't want to come back that's what the devil's goal is. He wants us to be back in that lost condition. And so we need to understand that the Christian can sin to a point where he is lost. The Bible plainly teaches that. Now there are denominations that are out there that would say once you're saved, you're always saved and you can not be lost. Or, There's nothing you can do that will cause you to be lost. But the Bible tells us that a Christian can sin to the point of being lost. In Acts chapter 8, Verses 18-24, through we read there, it says, And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands that the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Ghost. Now Simon was previously a sorcerer, and he had tricked the people, and they thought he was someone great. But the Bible says that he believed and he was baptized. And so the Bible says that he was a believer. And so people that want to say, well, he wasn't a Christian, they're wrong. Because the Bible plainly tells us that he was one of those that was baptized and that he believed. And so he's in a state of being a Christian now. And listen to what Peter tells him. Verse 20, But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. Simon was a Christian. But Simon wanted to purchase the Holy Spirit, and that, that, that was sinful. And as a result of that, his soul was again in jeopardy, and he needed to make things right with God. He was a Christian, but he was in a lost state because of that. And Peter says, pray. Now, if he wasn't a Christian to begin with because he didn't do what was right, why didn't Peter say, you need to be baptized again? You need to repent and be baptized. No, Peter just says repent. Why? Because he'd already been baptized. And so I think from that example, we can see that a Christian can sin to a point where they're in a, their soul's in jeopardy with God. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, it says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of that heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. We'll stop right there. Who's he describing? He's describing a Christian. A person that has benefited from being a child of God. They've tasted of those good things. They know what God can give them. But listen to what it says. Verse 6. If they shall fall away... To renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. You see, sin can separate us from God. Once again, and we need to understand that. But I want you to notice a particular verse, a passage of scripture which is found in 1 John chapter 5. In 1 John chapter 5, he's dealing with those that are Christians, those that are children of God, those that have been baptized into Christ. Now listen to what he says. If any man see his brother, brother, which would be a Christian, uh, sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life to them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death, I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. So, it appears that there is a difference between a sin unto death and a sin that is not unto death. Well, what is that difference? The difference is someone may sin and they realize it and they re- immediately repent and, and, and confess to God, and He is faithful and just to forgive us. A sin unto death is a sin that we refuse to repent of. We're not going to change. Had Simon the sorcerer, when he realized what he had done was wrong, said, well, I'm not going to change, Peter. I'm going to keep trying to buy this. And if you don't want to sell it to me, I'll go see if someone else wants to sell it to me. That would have been a sin unto death. Because he would have remained in that state. And when we refuse to repent, when we refuse to confess, that blood cannot cleanse us. That blood that Jesus shed cannot continually cleanse us. And that's what John is telling us here, that there's a difference. And as a Christian, we need to take confidence in the fact that God loves us and He cares for us. And that when we sin and we know it, we have to take care of it. And And the blood of Christ will wash away that sin once again. But the devil's goal is to cause us to be lost. He wants us to not be saved, and so he involves us in a spiritual warfare. And whether we like it or not, that warfare takes place. And it's his goal to get us to be lost. And so there's a real enemy that must be dealt with, and that is Satan, as we've seen there in our scripture reading this morning. And so we are in our passage of scripture that we talked about earlier this morning. But listen to what it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning of verse 8, it says, Be sober, be vigilant. Uh, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. But now listen to what it says in verse 9. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions were accompanied, or accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. He's saying resist the devil. Resist and remain steadfast in the faith. That what you are going through is the same thing that your brothers are going through that are in this world. We're not talking about non-Christians. We're talking about Christians that are in this world. That's who They're dealing with the same thing. So it's not something that is just specific to you. This is something that's happening to all Christians. That there's a challenge out there. There's a warfare going on. And we need to be able to battle that warfare. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So there's a spiritual battle that's taken place. And you can look at it there when when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Those are the same kind of things that happen to us. The devil doesn't leave us, but maybe for a short period of time. And so we resist... We remain steadfast, and He may leave us for a while, but He will come back and try something else. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, it says, And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance falling? If thou doest well, Shall thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. There's a lot that is, is, I think you can, you can, is implied there in those first few chapters of Genesis. I think that it's implied by listening to what God is telling Cain that God has specifically told them what they needed to sacrifice. Scripture doesn't say that. But here God is saying, if you do what's right, your, your sacrifice will be accepted. What you're offering will be accepted. You have a choice. And the same thing's true with us. We can do what's right, or we have a choice to do what's wrong. And when we realize that we're doing what's wrong, we need to change. And that's exactly what God's telling Cain. That you could have changed. You need to change and offer what's right. And he would be accepted. But he refused. Which would be a sin unto death if he never changed. And so that's the battle that we face in this world. That the devil is out to get us. And we need to continue to press forward as we go through this life. In Philippians chapter three, verses thirteen through fourteen, it says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He reached forward, he pressed. He didn't just like go about it in a simple way, he made tremendous effort to reach that goal. You know, I, it, it, I use the illustration and, and, I, and well, I guess I like the illustration. But in the outfield of a baseball game, somebody hits the ball out there Then that player runs and runs and runs and he's running as fast as he can and he gets to the point where he knows he can't do it without pressing as far as he can and he leaps and jumps and he catches the ball. He's had to put that extra effort into it or he wouldn't have done it. And that's, I think, what the scripture's showing us here that we have to make that effort. And it just can't be you know, simple. Sometimes you've got to press. You've got to make it happen in order for it to happen. And so God has given us what we need. And a complacent Christian is really a contradiction of terms when you think about it. Because the Bible tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. So if, 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 if I'm not a committed then, and I'm complacent in living that Christian life, How how am I going to work out my own salvation? How do I examine my life? How do I study to learn and grow if I'm complacent? If I don't care, I have to care. And I have to do what's right. Why? Because the devil wants me to fail. And I have to be determined to overcome the devil. Revelation 2 and verse 10 says, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. God wants us to be faithful as long as we're here on this earth. If death comes our way, then we need to be prepared and we should have lived our lives in such a way that we will have that home in heaven. Because it is laid aside for us, but we have to continue to be faithful. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time they should slip, let them slip. Why would we want to let something that God has given us slip? From our minds and our souls. God has given us what we need. So we need to understand that there's a battle that's going on for your soul, and the devil wants you to lose. He wants you to be lost. That's his desire. But now we can look at God's desire, because God has a different desire than the devil, because God wants us to be saved. In John 3, verses 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Think about what God has done for us. The tremendous price that was paid so that you and I could have that home in heaven. So that you and I could have the forgiveness of sin. And that's really a blessing to know that as a child of God, when we become a Christian, that our past sins are washed away by the blood when we go down in that watery grave of baptism and we come up out of that water. Because that act of, uh, of baptism is a, is a reenactment of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Read Romans chapter 6, verses 1-6. through 6. That's the picture that's painted. And so we come up out of that grave a new creature. And we need to be thankful. And Jesus came to this earth so that we could have that forgiveness. And that we can be a child of God. God does not want us to be lost. His desire is that we be saved. And you can see the price that He was willing to pay so that you and I could have that hope of eternal life. He is our friend. We need to understand that too. He's on our side. You know, sometimes we look at God as He's just that deity that's sitting up there waiting for us to do something wrong so He can smack us down. He's our friend. He's on our side, believe it or not. He's on our side and willing and able to help us to remain faithful to Him. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God be for us, who can be against us? So if God is there and he, and he cares about us and He wants us to be saved, what's He done to show us that He wants us to be saved? What has He done that, that, that demonstrates that fact that he, he wants you to be saved? Well, He's offered His Son, but God has also supplied all of the spiritual needs that you and I could ever need. In Ephesians chapter 1, and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So when we obey the Gospel, on the day of Pentecost when the Lord added them to the church as we read there in Acts chapter 2, they, were, they, they received spiritual blessings just like you and I received. Not only the forgiveness of sin, but there's other things that God has done for us that are re- spiritual blessings. You see, God cares about us and He wants us to be saved. And so we don't have to be afraid that we're going to lose our salvation. That somehow it's going to be taken away from us. That we're not going to have it anymore. John chapter 10 Verses 28 and 29, it says, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of My hand. My Father which gave them Me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of My Father's hand. What's He saying? I've given you eternal life. It's right there. And no one can take that away from you. No one can pluck you out of My hand. That's what God's saying. And isn't that wonderful to know? But here's the sad reality. The sad reality is that there's a lot of Christians that are in the hand of God, but they're trying to jump out. And some of them do jump out. They don't want to stay in that hand. They don't want to remain faithful. They don't want to do what's necessary in order to have that home in heaven. And so, that's a sad reality. You know, as a Christian, we should be out in this world trying to pull people in and trying to get people in the boat, as I say. But the sad reality is there's people always trying to jump out of the boat. Sometimes that gets depressing when you're trying to do all that you can to build up the kingdom and you have people jumping out and then you've got to go rescue them. Imagine pulling up to a ship that is sinking and there's a lot of people in the water that's drowning and you go around and you pull them all out and you get a bunch of them out and the next thing you know they're, all, they're starting to jump back in. You would look at that as crazy. What's wrong with these people? What's wrong with us when we want to jump out of the hand of God? And certainly we have seen people that have jumped out of the hand of God. No one can pluck them. No one could take them out of the hand of God. They took themselves out of the hand of God. by The the choices and decisions that they have made. But think about what God has given us. You see, He is our helper. He provides us with what we need in, our, in this spiritual warfare. When you think about Jesus and all that He's done, we realize that Jesus is our mediator, as it tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. He's that go-between who mediates between, between us and God so that we can have peace with God. He is also our advocate, as it tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, that He pleads our cause or our case before God. We can see that He's also our merciful and faithful High Priest as it tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, that He knows what we've faced in this life. He knows some of the struggles that you and I have had. And He knows what it's like. Because the Bible tells us He was tempted like we were, but yet without sin. So whatever you've gone through, don't think you're special, that you're the only one that's ever gone through it. Because our Lord knows what it's like to go through whatever you've gone through. The blood of Christ is another blessing that He's given us that as a Christian will continually cleanse us from all sin. You see, when we first obey the Gospel, we're baptized into Christ and our sins are washed away by the blood of Christ. It was in His death that His blood was shed. Now when Ananias went to Saul in Acts 22 and verse 16, what did he say? Why tarryst thou? Arise and be baptized. And what? Wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. We're talking about worldly wisdom in our class this morning. Out here in the auditorium. And worldly wisdom is some of the things that the denomination comes up with. Where they say, well, you don't need to be baptized. Uh, you know, that's something that's old. You can say this prayer. You can repeat after me and say this. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. The wisdom of God says that you need to be buried with our Lord of Baptism. For what? Have your sins washed away. Now, if I don't want to do that, am I going to have my sins washed away? You know, I could stand up here this morning and say, you know, all you need to do is just come down here and repeat, repeat this this prayer after me, and you'll be saved. Might make you feel good. Might give you comfort. But on a day of judgment, when the Lord says, Did you do what I said? You know, I said, either that believeth and is baptized shall be said, Did you do that? Well, well, no. Well, what do you think the Lord's going to say on that day? You see, sometimes we think we're smarter than God. God's given us what we need for this battle, God's given us what we need to be helped in this life, to get through this life to overcome sin, to overcome temptation. And Jesus is that hope. And as a Christian, we're supposed to be dead to sin. But the Bible plainly teaches us that we will sin. And anyone that says they have no sin is a liar. And the truth is not in them. Now, I believe that we're striving as hard as we can to avoid sin, but the Bible says we sin. And that that blood will continually cleanse us from all sin. Well, what about the sin unto death? Well, is it going to cleanse us from that sin? Not if we're, unwilling to, or if we're not willing to repent. If we're unwilling to repent, then guess what? We're going to be lost. Because that's a sin unto death. So any sin that we refuse to repent of, that blood can't cleanse. And so we need to understand that God's given us the help that we need. And in this warfare that we're battling, we can see that God does some things for us. Because it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 13, "...there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, and who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which ye are able. But will with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able... To bear it. You know, sometimes when we're going through life and we, we run into a struggle and it's a difficult one, which is filled with all kinds of temptations. Sometimes to give up, sometimes to question God and say, You know, I'm not going to do this anymore. But the Bible says that God provides a way of escape. And sometimes when we're going through that, we don't see the way of escape. And that's partly because we're not looking for the way of escape. You see, sometimes when we're tempted, it's something that we wanted to do. Just like James says, we're drawn away by our own lust. And so we're going to do what we want to do. And we give in to the temptation. And when we give in, that's where the sin comes in. And so we need to understand that, guess what? God's provided a way of escape. And He doesn't uh, allow us to be tempted above that which we are able. That's a blessing, a spiritual blessing that we have. And you may look at your life and say what you're going through and say, Boy, God must have a lot of confidence in me. Maybe He does. Sometimes we just don't have the confidence in ourselves. Sometimes we're not as strong as we should be. Sometimes we give in too easy. We need to be stronger. So He delivers us from temptation. The Holy Spirit even makes intercession for us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So not only do we have God as a helper and Jesus as a helper, the Holy Spirit is helping us. He makes intercession for us also. Because sometimes we don't know what to ask for. You ever talk to God and you know maybe you have a challenge in your life and you just don't know how to word it? You don't know what to say or how to ask? You just leave it in their hands. The Holy Spirit helps us in those areas. In Hebrews chapter one, and verse 14, it tells us they all are that, that they all, are they not all ministering spirits, sent forth to minister from the, for them, who shall be heirs of salvation. We'll get that scripture out there in a minute. But he's telling us that there's angels out there. I don't know what they do. Do you know what they do? Well, there's a lot of books written about what they do, but guess what? The Bible doesn't tell us what they do. But they're out there to help us in some way. God cares about us. And He wants us to get to heaven. He chastens us also. In Hebrews chapter 12, beginning of verse 5, it says, "...and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of Him." For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every man whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? And if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Wherefore ye have had fathers of, the, of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to our Father of spirits and live? And they verily for a few days chasten us after their own pleasure, but, for, but He for our profit, that we might be partakers of His holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby." God cares about us. And sometimes He chastens us, tests us out there to see if we're strong, to help us to become stronger. Sometimes we may be involved with something that we shouldn't be, and that chastisement may be tough. It may be hard to deal with. Because God wants to straighten us out. And as a child, you know, your mom and dad, when they tried to correct you, it wasn't always pleasant, was it? But what were they doing? They were doing it for our good. Why does God do what He does? He's doing it for our good. You see, He helps us. He cares about us. He loves us. He's given us His Word. Psalms 28, verses 6 and 7, Blessed be the Lord, because He hath heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusteth in Him, and I am helped. Therefore my heart greatly rejoiceth, and my, with my psalm will I praise Him. You read several of the Psalms of David and one of the key words that you'll see in many of those uh, Psalms is the word trust. When we don't trust someone, it's hard to put our faith in them. And Sometimes we say we trust God, but our actions betray us. If we really trust God, we have faith in Him, we're going to do what He's told us to do, no matter how difficult it may be. No matter how challenging it may seem to us. We're going to do those things that God wants us to do. And He has given us His Word to help us. As Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. So God is there to help us. He cares about us. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to have that home in heaven. It's down the road. But He wants you to be faithful so that it can be obtained. And He's helping us because He knows that we have an adversary that is trying to cause us to be lost, and God has given us everything that we need in order to be saved. Look at some of the other things that He's given us. He's given us a congregational relationship where we can come together as His people to worship Him, to study His Word, to have fellowship with each other. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, "...let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaken the assembly of ourselves together as a manner of some is." but exhorting one another as much the more as you see the day approaching. We come together to build each other up, to lift each other up, to encourage one another, to strive together, to provoke, a strong word there, but to provoke the love and good works. We're encouraging people that as we leave this building, don't just sit here and be a Christian, go out there and be a Christian. Let your light be seen. Do the works that God wants you to do so that His name is what's glorified. He's given us special servants, as we read in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive, but speaking of the truth and love may grow up in him in all things, which is the head even Christ for whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which very uh, that very A joint supplieth according to the effectual workings of the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. God's given us people in the church, different positions. We see the apostles of the old that we can read about in the Bible. They're there today in the Bible for us to read and to know what we're to do. We see the prophets in the Bible that we can read and know what they are to do. We have evangelists who need to be proclaiming the Word of God. That's the whole point of it. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. We have teachers that are out to teach God's Word. We need to be faithful. We need to do what's right. He's given us all of these things. Elders in the church that can guide and guard the flock. All of those things are there. That are there to help us, and the scriptures, of course, as it tells us in 1st or 2nd Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Certainly, the Bible is there for a reason. I always wonder why people don't want to follow what the Bible teaches, they claim they want to follow God but they have such little respect for His Word. The Bible is something that is important, and if it's not God's Word, what did He give it to us for? Why do we have it? Why is it listed or lasted so many years? Why has He protected it? Man has tried to destroy it, but has been unable to do so. Why? Because it's the Word of God. And it's there for a reason. It's so that you and I can be perfect, thoroughly furnished and do what God wants us to do. And then certainly He's given us prayer, the ability to talk to Him. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6-7, through 7, Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We can talk to God, Creator of this universe. Isn't that amazing? To know that you can speak to God. God helps us in this battle for our soul. The devil wants us to be lost. God wants us to be saved. What's our desire? You see, the Christian is secure in Christ, but it is conditional. As Proverbs chapter 14, verse 26 tells us, "...in the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and His children shall have a place of refuge." The condition is the fear of the Lord. We need to respect God as the authority, the ultimate authority. That He is God and we are not. He is God, we are His servants. He's our Master, He's our Lord. He's our, the, the, the Almighty. And so we need to understand that He is the one that we are to serve. And fear, yes, I believe that that means that if we are doing something wrong that we should be afraid. That we should fear God because we know that there's consequences and He's told us what those consequences are and they're very serious. that should put fear in our lives that we want to do what God wants us to do, but our motive really should be love because we love God and we want to do what He wants because of that love that we have for Him. You see, so the Christian... Can be positive and optimistic about his salvation in Christ. In first John 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28, it says, Now little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. When the Lord comes, what what's your reaction going to be? Are you going to have confidence? Are you or are you going to be ashamed of the life that you've lived? Because you know you could do better. You know, you can strive harder. You can more diligently seek Him. Are you doing what you're supposed to do? In 1 John chapter 3, and verse 19, And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. Jesus said, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. That truth is absolute truth, what Jesus tells us. And we need to trust it. We can have confidence, and then we can be triumphant. We can have that the triumphant attitude that we see with Paul and others. But listen to what it says in first John chapter five and verse thirteen. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So what's the Bible telling us? The devil wants us to be lost, God wants us to be saved, and we can know whether we're lost oh, we're saved. You and I can know with beyond any doubt whether or not we're saved. And we have that home in heaven. We can have that same confidence that the Apostle Paul had. And we should have that same confidence. Yet we cannot be lackadaisical, complacent about our obedience. Unwarranted confidence Needs to be avoided. We need to stay away from that. As well as unnecessary fear. We shouldn't just say, yeah, we're saved and we're we know it. Our life should be you should be able to look at your life and see that Christ is living in you. And that's the question that we need to ask ourselves. Is Christ living in us? Do people in this world see our Lord in our lives? In 2 Peter chapter one verses 10 and eleven Wherefore the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure for if you do these things, ye shall never fall, For as an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Is that a guarantee? Well, I believe it most certainly is. If you read those preceding verses, you'll see that guess what if I do these things, what's Peter saying? I will not fall. We fall when we fail to do what Peter says in those earlier verses. Only the obedient will go to heaven. That's something that's very important. In Ephesians chapter five verses five through seven, for this we know that no whoremonger nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not therefore partakers with them. Don't do those things out there in the world. It may look fun. It may look enjoyable. It may make people feel good. But if it violates God's law, it's a sin. And we need to be faithful to God. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 5, and verse 9, it says, "...and being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him." God expects us to be obedient. We see what the devil wants. We see what God's done for us to help us to be saved. He wants us to do those things and take advantage of those things that He's provided. And so He wants us to be obedient to His will. And only the obedient child of God will have the confidence that they need to have on the day of judgment to have heaven as their home. You see, Christians are expected to avail themselves of what God has offered to them to to help them. You see, there's many admonitions in the Bible about being faithful. We can see where it says in 1 Corinthians chapter ten and verse twelve, "Take heed lest you fall." In First Peter chapter one and verse thirteen, "Gird up your loins, the loins of your mind." In First or First Corinthians chapter nine and verse twenty-seven, we can see that we need to be disciplined in our own lives. And then we can see in Colossians chapter two and verse seven that we need to be rooted in the faith, built up in Him, and established in the faith. And then, as Ephesians chapter six, verses ten through eighteen, tells us, that we need to put on the whole armor of God—not just part of it, but the whole armor of God—and then be strong in the Lord, as as Paul tells us in Second Timothy chapter two and verse one. And then stand fast in the faith. And last, but John, and as James tells us, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. May not be for a long time, but he'll come back. But resist Him again. And you keep resisting as long as you have to resist. Because that ultimate goal of heaven will be worth whatever we go through in this life to obtain it. So what can we do on a daily basis? Well, we can pray. We can study God's Word. We can associate with fellow Christians. We can be involved with the work of the church, do some of the things that are needed. Uh, We can... uh, attend service like we're supposed to. We should be here every time the doors are open. We should accept correction. When we're doing something that's wrong, we need to realize that and change. Don't be stubborn. Don't be prideful. And then we need to repent. See, God provides us what we need. And when we neglect God, it will be a great peril to our own soul because the devil will win. And that's not what we want. And so we need to remember that Satan's desire is for us to be lost. God's desire is for us to be saved. Our desire should be to be obedient. That's what we should all be striving for on a daily basis. Because we realize that if we're not faithful to God, we're going to be lost. So yes, God has saved us when we obey the Gospel, but that home in heaven is future down the road somewhere. Don't know how far off it is for any of us. Could be this afternoon for some, maybe some years and years away for others. The fact of the matter is, He's promised it and given us what we need so that we can maintain that faithful condition with Him. This morning, if you're not a Christian, Jesus died for your sins. He was buried and He rose victorious over the grave so that you and I could have that home in heaven. God wants you to be saved. And he sent his son to die for that, just for that reason. And tonight, this morning, if you want to obey the gospel, we have clothing, we have the water, everything's ready. And you can be buried with our Lord in baptism, just like Jesus wants you to be and tells us that we must be in order to be saved. Because he tells us in Mark chapter 16, 15 and 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That gospel message is the fact that Jesus died and was buried and rose victorious over the grave. And that's what we preach and that's what we teach. And that's what you must accept in order to be saved. Maybe you haven't done that. You can do that this morning. But maybe you are a Christian. You haven't maintained that faithful status in, the, in your life. you become lackadaisical. You haven't been doing what you should. you kind of got sloppy in living that Christian life. I want to encourage you this morning to get back on the right road. Maintain that relationship with God. Do some of the things that have been mentioned this morning that will help you, that God's given you to help you to get to heaven. And then together, hopefully, we'll all be able to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and thou unto the joys of thy Lord. If you need to respond, you can come and have a seat up here on the front row as together we stand and sing.